Uh, yeah, we, we're going back to our regular routine. We're, we're going back to our series here, Pilgrim's Life, where we've been moving through the book of First Peter. Um, and the truth that we kept going back to uh, in this series was that Christians are pilgrims. And we live as pilgrims in this world. And for several weeks, we've been exploring the depths and dimensions of that theme. That is, on the one hand, we're still in the world, right? We remain part of society. We remain engaged. We do good for our community. And we fulfill the duties of whatever role that we find ourselves in. So we're still in the world. But on the other hand, we're no longer of the world. There's a different vision. There's a different motivation behind everything that we do. And that often gets us in trouble for trying to serve a different kingdom than this world. And so the book of First Peter really is a call for us to persevere through the toil and suffering until we finally get home to God. For now, though, we're pilgrims. Now, that's not to say we always get it right. There are times of crisis and paralysis and just utter failure. And that's why Peter closes, makes sure before he closes his letter, he gives us this passage that we'll look into today. Let me read to you 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 to 4. Okay. 1 Peter 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your care, over endurance in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Now, in this passage, Peter is talking directly to the elders, which are the church leaders. Uh, the question is, why suddenly bring this up after spending four whole chapters talking about us being in exile and talking about suffering? Of course, the answer is, what leaders do and how the church responds is absolutely crucial to our survival in exile. Absolutely crucial. So look, if you are a church, el church leader of any kind, maybe an elder, pastor, life group leader, Sunday school teacher, or maybe even you're a parent and you're a spiritual leader to your children, which is even more important, then you need to take this passage very seriously, very seriously. Now, even if you're not any of those, this passage still speaks to you because notice in verse three, Peter says, you leaders be so-and-so, why? as examples to the flock. See, it, the, these attitudes and principles cut across all of life no matter where you are. In turn, the leaders and the parents should be at the forefront, right? Demonstrating and embodying this to a high degree so that when the church and when your children ask, well, why should I endure suffering for Christ? What, how can I move forward? What can my life look like in Christ? they can look to the leaders and their parents and see an attractive answer to those questions. 
what they will see is a life that they would want to copy-paste. It's a life that they would want for themselves. So let's look at this passage and let's ask three questions here. Let's ask, copy who? Copy what? And copy how? Who, what, how? Now the first question is, well, what kind of people are worth copying? What kind of people are worth patterning our lives after? And Peter here is talking to the elders who are the church leaders. Now, elders, literally, they're older men who became church leaders, who became leaders in the church. Uh, In ancient society, as in many traditional cultures today, people highly regarded old age because it's associated with wisdom and experience that comes along with it. So naturally, people look to older men to be their leaders. And so that's your elders, the leaders in the church. Now, in the New Testament, when you look at it, you do also come across two other terms, right? You have pastors, you have overseers. Uh, those are really just different terms of calling the elder. Uh, it's, it's highlighting different aspects of their leadership role. So uh, just like how we would call the CEO today as a decision maker, a team manager and a decision and a vision caster, right? Different roles, same person. So notice, for example, here in this passage, the elders are responsible to what? To shepherd, which is where we get the word pastor. And they're also responsible to exercise oversight, which is an overseer. So elder, pastor, overseer, different roles, same person. Now, As the centuries went by and the church evolved, those terminologies have also evolved, right? So for example, in our church, I'm called a pastor, but I'm not an elder. I'm not that old yet. Uh, So, uh, but the point being made here is that in the New Testament, at least in the early stage of the church, elders simply meant spiritual leaders, right? So so you may be a leader of a household church of 10 people meeting meeting in a household church, or it could be something as large as the ministry of Peter, who calls himself what? He's, he's called himself a fellow elder, right? So I talk about that because we need to think for a moment, who are the spiritual leaders in our lives? Bring their faces into your minds for a moment here. Maybe it's the elder, it's the pastor, it's your ministry heads, it's your discipleship leader, maybe it's your Christian parents, right? Think about that for a moment because we need to be careful about how we relate with them before we even talk about copy-pasting what we see. Because otherwise, we would fall into the dangers of either disdaining them or idealizing them, right? On the one hand, we don't want to disdain them. We want to respect them. Uh, Peter says that uh, elders, the spiritual leaders, they're entrusted by God to shepherd, to exercise oversight, which means God has entrusted them with a measure of authority inside the church. And look, so authority, you know, In our society nowadays, we are deeply skeptical of any authority because there's just been too many abuse. But in the Christian perspective, authority by itself, it's a good thing. God instituted authority in the family, in the church, and in society. So it's a good thing. It's meant to prevent chaos. It's meant to, for our flourishing, right? It's a good gift from God. And therefore, as Christians, we respect our leaders. There's a kind of loyalty there. There's a, there's a level of honor given. There, there's a level of humility that submits to their decisions. 
Now, next week's passage, we'll say more about that, but it's important to bring up now that on the one hand, we don't disdain leaders. We want to respect them. On the other hand, we don't want to idealize leaders. We want to kind of humanize them. We want to put them down to the level of an ordinary human being because no matter how much a person has moved you and no matter how noble and admirable they are, at the end of the day, they're just humans and they're going to disappoint us. The fact that Peter has to tell the elders here how to live right means sometimes they don't. (laughs) And so we can't idealize leaders or a group of leaders, no matter how admirable they are, we can't build our whole lives and our whole faith around them because sooner or later, we're gonna realize how utterly human they are. And it's gonna take us years just to recover from those wounds, right? So there's that balance. You don't disdain, you you respect. You don't idealize, you humanize, right? Sounds very simple. Actually, the concept is pretty simple. The problem is when rubber meets the road, it's when reality hits. Because, think about it, when a leader, he's actually faithful, you know, he's actually humble, you know what's gonna happen? He's gonna make himself vulnerable to you, transparent with you, he's gonna be honest with you, he's gonna make himself accountable to you, which means you are gonna know just how flawed and sinful this person can be. And when the situation comes up, when you actually disagree with their decisions and when they sin against you, you know what's going to happen? You're going to want to disdain them. You're going to say, why would I submit to a person like this? Why respect this guy? See, but on the other hand, but if the leaders, if a leader is, you know, trying to put his strong charismatic side to you, and he remains a bit far off from you just so you don't see the warts and all that, well, then you're going to see how great and noble and admirable this person is, and you're going to want to idealize this person. I bring this up because, especially after the COVID lockdown, what happens nowadays is people have access to watch preachers and leaders all around the globe, gifted, wonderful leaders, And the problem is not the technology. The problem is not their ministry. Those are good things, blessed things. The problem is our hearts. Is when we look at this far off leader and their giftings and then we say, well, how come my leader? (laughs) And then we compare it to my leader's failings. We look at someone's triumph and then we compare it with my leader's trials. See, in idealizing this far off leader that we will never talk to for our whole lives, let's be honest, we then use that to disdain the leader that God has set beside us for our lives, for our journey. And so there's a balance that we have to maintain here. There's a delicate balance. Those that you are tempted to disdain, you want to honor. Those you are tempted to idealize, you have to sort of humanize them. But bring them back to the center, right? And and unless we strike that balance, we will never properly copy-paste or safely copy-paste the examples of our spiritual leaders. Because if you swing to one extreme and you disdain them, well, then you'll blindly reject everything about them, even the good things that God is doing in this man's life. But if you swing to the other end of the pendulum and you idealize them, well, you'll blindly accept everything about them, even the bad things. See? See? In either case, we're not doing what the author of Hebrews t- 
tells us how we should relate with our leaders. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So you want to consider the outcome first and then imitate the good faith. Now, when we talk about copy-paste, what are we talking about? Copy-pasting what exactly? What should we be looking to mimic or to, to follow the example of our leaders? Well, in these verses, in verse 3, Peter, when talking to the leaders, the elders, he talks not so much about what they do, but how they do it. See, Peter is more concerned about the attitudes rather than the aptitude of these leaders. God is, after all, more concerned with the heart than with the work of our hands. See, so in the church, we have different tasks to fulfill. One is an elder, one is a parent, one is a Sunday school teacher, one is a new believer, different tasks to fulfill. But at the end of the day, God looks beyond the quantity of your tasks and influence He looks at the quality of your soul. He looks at the quality of your hearts. And so Peter's saying, leaders, here's what you should embody and demonstrate to a high degree so that your lives would be an illustration, would be an answer, would be a concrete example of what the church and your children should emulate, right? So what are these attitudes? There's three that Peter talks about here. The first attitude, Peter says, God wants us to serve him, what? Not under compulsion, but willingly. Willingly. Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, he tells this story of another doctor that he knew. And this, this doctor had a little dog, right? And every day, he would bring the dog to the park and they would walk this path, same path, same place every day. Every day, right? And so the owner of the dog, you know, is, he's on a leash with the dog. And the dog, you know how dogs are, just, just trying to run away from you, tugging at the leash. And so this went on day after day. But one day, the owner, the master, decided, you know what? I think I know this dog well enough. This dog well knows me and the path well enough. I'm going to risk it. <laughs> and so the next time they went to the park, when they arrived at the path, he unleashed the dog. And immediately, the dog bolted out of sight. And, you know, the master's heart sank a little bit. He got a little anxious, but he said to himself, no, 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 no. I'm going to walk with my dog. I'm going to stick to my path. I'm going to see my dog again. And, you know, about 10 minutes later, the dog came running back and started to walk alongside him. And from that day on, they started to walk that path every day without a leash anymore. Now, I'm not saying you do that with your dogs. You be responsible with your own dogs, right? But here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying. He says, what happened? In the past, the dog had to be held. But now, the dog offered himself willingly to his master. The dog now knows that this is a master he can trust, that this is the path that they always take. And now he offers himself willingly. Do you know God in such a way that you can say to yourself, I know my master. I know he takes care of me. I know I can trust him. I know this is the path of the cross that he always takes me to walk into, that he himself takes. 
And therefore, I'll offer myself willingly. I'll offer myself willingly to walk with you, Master, through this path. Do you know God in such a way? So that's the first attitude. The second attitude that leaders should emulate, uh, that demonstrate and the church should emulate is God wants us to serve him, what? Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. (laughs) Eagerly. Now, Peter's not saying receiving benefits or, or, or some blessing from serving God is wrong. What Peter is saying, it becomes wrong and shameful when it becomes all about that, all about the money, all about the blessing. It's when our hearts are moved, not by God anymore, but by the things that we can get. Dr. Tim Keller shares this story that he got from Dr. John Gerstner. So, you know, I copy, paste, copy, paste. And the story of Dr. John Gerstner is he tells this story of a young woman he knew. In the 1930s, there was a Christian conference, and this young woman was a teenager. She was very moved by the messages, and she decided, I'm going to give my life to Christ in a special way. I'm going to commit myself to lifetime missionary service. And her heart goes, decided to go to Asia. Now, then Dr. John Gerstner says, you know, he's seen many young people make these kinds of vows, but they don't even last for weeks. But this young woman kept with it, stuck with her resolve. And she went through high school. She did her research. She found out that it was very difficult, very dangerous. This was in the 1930s, 1940s. Uh, but she stuck with the resolve. She said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And then so she, she went to the missionary agencies. The missionary agencies told her that w- you need two things before we can send you as a missionary to Asia. The first thing is you need to go through all kinds of training. Learn about the Bible, theology, cross-cultural stuff. And oh, by the way, the second thing you need is you need a husband. <laughs> because for safety reasons and for cultural reasons, we can't send single American women to Asia. Not at that time. Right? And so near the end of high school, this young woman, she sat down, she prayed, God, I take my hands off my life. I'll give you everything. I don't need a comfortable life. I don't, I don't need to have a safe life. I'm giving you my life. I'm gonna, everyone else is planning to you know, go to all sorts of fun and games, but me, I'll go, Lord. I'll do the training. But there's just one thing I need, Lord. I need a husband. Send me a husband, Lord. And so this woman goes to Bible college for four years, difficult. And another two years for missionary training school, difficult. But she goes through all of it. And as the years went by, no boyfriend, no husband, nothing. And on the night that she was about to graduate from all that training, no boyfriend, no husband. And then he, she said, I sat down in my dorm room, an angry young woman. On the night that she was about to graduate, she said, God, how could you do this to me? I have nowhere else to go. I put everything in this. I have got nothing else to do. I, I went through all sorts of things for you. All I asked for was just one thing, and you didn't give it to me. How could you do this? And so she struggled, she wrestled that night. But then suddenly, she realized something that night. 
She realized that she was deceiving herself this whole time. She realized that she was miserable, not because she had taken her hands off her life and given it to God. She was miserable because she never had. She realized that she had developed this idea of a heroic, noble life. And she said to God, God, I'm going to do all these things, serve you all things, but you have, give me this life. This is the life I want. Then she said, that night, for the first time, I took my hands off my life. And I said, God, you know best. You know what I should do. You know where I should go. I take my hands off my life. Do with my life as you please. She was no longer serving for herself, for some shameful gain. But it gave her life to God. Then Dr. John Gerstner, he closes that story by looking at these young men that he was speaking to. And then he says, if that, young, if that woman spent a third of her life being ready for missionary service, saying goodbye to fun, saying goodbye to comfort, saying goodbye to, you know, a, a prosperous career, saying goodbye to everything, and thought she had actually given up her life to God, but then realizes that she had not. Dr. Gerstner says, do you think you have then? See, Peter says, serve God, not for shameful gain, but eagerly take your hands off your life and give it all to God. No matter what he does with it, give it to him. So that's the second attitude that we want to copy-paste onto our lives. And thirdly, the attitude is God wants us to serve not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Remember, Peter is talking to the elders here, the most influential, the, the oldest, the most experienced, and perhaps the most skillful person in the room. And he says, there's no room for arrogance. You can't boss it around people. You're not some arrogant boss who shouts at people to get things done, who shames people to behave the right way. No, 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 no. There's no room for that power play inside that church. Not one inch, not even a whiff. Because Jesus, didn't Jesus say, the greatest among you must be the servant of all? Didn't Jesus himself stoop down to wash feet? That's how you serve. That's how you serve. You don't scold people, you serve people. You don't demand from people, you sacrifice for people. You model them, right? That's how you serve, as an example to them. And so the, the only way that could, that could come from you is when it comes from a humble heart, from heart that is humble. So you take all that Peter is saying, all these three attitudes, is God wants us to serve him willingly and eagerly and humbly. And the leaders, we ought to be striving to do that to a high, high degree so that the church and our children can emulate what they see. Now, if you're anything like me, you're probably in your seats thinking, okay, okay, wow, great, great. But how do I do this? <laughs> I'm a thousand miles away from that. What can I do? What are the next steps to take? How can I even finish that race? It's, 
It seems impossible. Well, here's what Peter is hinting at in this passage and what the author of Hebrews tells us directly. Look to your leaders. Not because they're perfect, obviously, but because they're faithful. And you let, let, let examine their lives, consider the outcome of their lives, and see not a perfect illustration, but a faithful illustration of what this looks like. Let their lives motivate you. So if you're struggling, look beside you at the leader who's struggling with you, right? They're also failing. They're also not making that great of a progress, but they're never giving up. They keep on getting back up to serve God willingly, not under compulsion, not for shameful gain, not domineering, but eagerly striving, seeking God one step at a time. And you emulate what they're illustrating for you. That's what Peter is hinting at here. Now, how do you do that? How do you find the strength? How do you find a dynamic in your heart such that you can keep doing that day and day after? How do you do that? Well, Peter closes this passage in verse 4. And right here, you can see a resource to help us persevere. Now, there's two here, but it's really linked together as one. But the first resource that I want to point out is, Peter says, there's a hope of glory. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. There's a hope of glory. See, the reason why we can keep standing back up, the reason why leaders, even though they fail, they can they choose to stand back up and serve God again. And the reason why the church can keep doing that is because there is a hope of glory. We take the cross today because tomorrow we receive the crown. We journey in exile today because tomorrow we will be brought home to God. But see, that hope, it cannot stay as an abstract concept. You know, it's not something that you know but you never use, like trigonometry or chemistry, you know? That can't be the case. That hope has to be, has to be at the forefront of your, of your imagination. It's how you should look at your life. It should dominate your perspectives. It can't be a blurry kind of hope. It has to be a blazing hope. Do you know how to go from here to here? How do you get a sharper focus of that hope? Well, there are some practical ways to get started, of course, and we'll be doing the communion later, which is one way that God has given us to sharpen that focus towards the future. But just from 1 Peter, we can also look at the context. Where is Peter coming from that he can talk about this hope? Well, if you look at chapter 4, the passages that we've been looking at, you can also draw a couple of practical things. He keeps talking about suffering, how we should expect suffering, how we should embrace suffering for Christ, how we should entrust those sufferings, how we should exult in suffering. See, the reason why so many of us are not living from that blazing hope is because we're too busy trying to live a comfortable life. We have this whole life planned out and it's gonna be as comfortable and safe as possible and suffering, you know, it's gonna come but it's more of an interruption. The only suffering that we really, we really expect is at the very end. And if that's the case, what practical use is hope? Why hope at all? See? But in contrast to that, Peter 
says the Christian life is a life marked with suffering. All kinds of suffering shot through with suffering. There's no other way. It's the only way to be a Christian in exile. And so look, one practical way to sharpen that hope is to actually do what we've been trying to do in this whole series, and that is to reframe our minds to be a pilgrim, to really renovate how we see ourselves in this life, that this is not home, that even you know, after church, you'll be going back home, but that's not home. That's just a temporary home. This is not home. This is exile, and therefore, I'm going to expect suffering. I'm going to embrace suffering for Christ and entrust and exult in that. Right? Because it's the way to glory. And if you can somehow, by God's grace, reframe your mind in that way, then you'll find your soul naturally clinging on harder to that hope. And sooner or later, day by day, that focus becomes sharper and sharper, and you'll have that blazing hope of glory. It will give you that strength to keep going back to serve God. Right? So we have that hope of glory. And secondly, uh, the second resource, which is really the source of that glory, is the chief shepherd himself. Peter says the chief shepherd will appear one day. Now, the spiritual leaders, see, Peter says, you shepherd the flock. The leaders in our lives, they are assistant shepherds, under shepherds, right, who've been commissioned by God to shepherd us in the meantime. But the chief shepherd is Jesus himself. Jesus himself is a chief shepherd. And by the way, isn't that the most comforting and assuring encouragement of all? Because Jesus, if he is in charge, if he takes the final responsibility to guard my life from every danger, to care for me, and, he, and he, he calls me by my name, then even if I fall, even if my leaders fall, even if the church that we attend falls, I can always have hope. I can always stand back up because he is my chief shepherd. He's the one taking care of me, right? See, we can have that hope because the chief shepherd is also the good shepherd. He calls himself, he says, I'm the good shepherd who lays down, who lays down his life for his sheep. See, when Peter says, you elders shepherd the flock, willingly, not under compulsion, why? The reason they do that is because they're looking to the chief shepherd. They're looking to imitate the chief shepherd who gave his life willingly for you, for me. He wasn't compelled to do that. He willingly gave himself for us. Elders, shepherd the flock, not for shameful gain, not domineering, but eagerly and humbly. Why? Because he came to serve, not to serve. He didn't do it for shameful gain. He lost absolutely everything, utterly everything to gather us to gather us back into the fold, to save us, to snatch us away from the fire. See, the reason why any leader or any believer or any person can be faithful to God is because when we are faithless, the shepherd remains faithful. 
And to the degree that we put ourselves under his care, that we let ourselves sink into his gentle arms, that we let our lives be directed by his skillful hands, then you can have that blazing hope. It'll become utterly real. And you'll have that tremendous strength because Jesus is your chief shepherd. See, let me go back to the passage in Hebrews and give you the next verse, right? Here's what, the, here's what Hebrews says. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Immediately after talking about your leaders, he swings to the chief shepherd because your leaders may go, fail, rise, pass away. You will also, but he remains the same. He remains your shepherd your entire lives and even after death. And if he is your chief shepherd, then you can have that hope, you can have that strength, and you can have that balance. You can have that balance. If you have a right relationship with your chief shepherd, then how you relate with the assistant shepherds will come into balance. Don't disdain them because they're the shepherds commissioned by your chief shepherd. You don't idealize them because only he is the good shepherd. Do you know that strength and that hope and that balance? Find it and find it all in the good shepherd, in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you, Lord, that you assure us that Jesus is the good shepherd, that he will take the ultimate responsibility to care for us, to guide us, to be the perfect example that we can seek to copy-paste. Father, lift our eyes to him and help us, Lord, to be grateful for the assistant shepherds that you have surrounded us. We pray that we may respect them and submit to them and honor them in honor of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, help us as a church to grow, to be faithful, Help our leaders to stay faithful, that we may follow their examples. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.